You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Martin, 2023 has certainly started with a bang. There are lots of things happening, UA conference around the corner, very little time to stop and think, a lot of doing. Certainly is a lot of doing, and it's uh, capitalizing on a lot of thinking that we've done for a long time, Carl. So it's exciting to be translating that thinking into action. And look, the the UA conference in Canberra next week with the launch of a book from our first 50 conversations with global leaders and another conversation coming out today with one of the most inspiring leaders we've met over 64 episodes is us getting right in the heart of um, leading this agenda. We we can't wait to share that with with 1,200 plus delegates at Canberra at the UA conference. And I can't wait to see that building to our first live event of 2023 in Melbourne in March. Very exciting time. So Martin, just on on your book, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, look, this is um, this is for me a really really nice compilation of the thinking from so many leaders of Australian universities, but but so many global leaders too, and people from educational institutions, but also the tech sector and the uh, the industry, employer sector, um, and uh, consultants to to the education sector about what the priorities are for leadership at this critically important and and sort of inflection point of 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 development of the sector and it, it to me has been a really great opportunity of combining the views of australian and other world expert experts with such a strong reform agenda in australian higher education at the start of 2023 with the university accord we we, we didn't know there was going to be that um reform agenda coming at this point in time when we started in 2020 but to have Two and now three years worth of work all being consolidated in one book and being the culmination of ours and the sector's thinking at the point where we're all looking at embarking upon an action agenda of change is a fabulous full stop on the work to date and a starting point for what we're going to be doing next. And have you got any forecasts or any inkling into how this year is going to play out? You know, we've got the accord in flight, a variety of things will come as a result of that appetite for change, ability, conditioning, habits, patterns. I know we've been talking from in a spectrum from those people who have an interest in change to those people who are, they're not comfortable unless it's rambunctious change. So how do you feel the year will play out? Well, I, I, I think this this second half of our interview with Paul LeBlanc of Southern New Hampshire University that we're um, going to be going to soon today and talking about after we've finished up hearing from Paul, I think it's a great metaphor for exactly the answer to that question. I, I think this is a time where all of us are going with our thinking beyond what the the norms have been in the past. And he, he says something about this in the episode itself, and we've been saying it for two or three years and leaders have been saying it with us. It's mm. it's a time beyond for going beyond the conventional way of measuring quality in the sector, mm. of going beyond rankings that look backwards around reputation for a narrow segment of activity in the past. It's a time to have clarity of purpose and to be developing curiosity about what we can become in the future. And I, I, th I think that that clarity of understanding around the importance of purpose and the need for curiosity is, to me, what comes out of 50 episodes 
up until the publication of the book and now 64 over um, a scan of the world's leading thinkers and the agenda that we inherit for the period ahead. Brilliant, Martin. I know we're looking forward to connecting with people at the UA conference very shortly. We're going to go now to our second interview with Paul LeBlanc just after this short message from our sponsor. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. In this episode of HeadX, we're returning to our interview with Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University, who I introduced last week as being the, the president of a university in New England that's that's been there for close to 20 years, growing a, a, a very large institution serving a very distinct social justice purpose. We talked with him last week about his book, Students First, and his concepts of moving from a time-based to a company-based model of education. And this week, we're talking to him about his book, his other book, his more recent book called Broken, where he talks passionately about the heart of leadership and being compassionate as a leader, and the ideas of um, really reaching out to students and demonstrating that they're being seen and, and, and that they matter. And I use that as a segue to ask him about what they're doing in going about the connections with their students at Southern New Hampshire. Here's Paul. What we're trying to do at SNHU is make sure that we understand what are the human relationships that will transform our students' lives. We've articulated that. We can get very concrete about that. It's centered on the relationship of students to their academic advisors. I call them academic advisors because we're a university. They're life coaches, <laughs> right? 80% of their time is actually spent knowing you as a person, knowing that your kids are sick and driving you crazy, knowing that your marriage is going through a rough patch, knowing that you didn't get that promotion, knowing that you're not confident about your exam next week, knowing that, right, on and on and on. Um, that's what they are. That's centered around that. And what we're trying to build is a scale system that says, what are the human relationships that are most powerful and transformational how do we hold the space for those relationships? How do we hold that space sacred? And then how do we trans how do we automate and scale the hell out of everything else? Because everything else can be scalable. That and in the book, my revelation in, in interviewing innovators in various industries is that they are flipping the form the script. Because the script in so many systems in the United States is how do we automate? How do we build in processes? How do we build in systems? How do we deploy technology? How do we measure efficiency? How do we drive out cost? And a lot of times it's, and then how do we like reduce as much as possible the human? How do we like, how do we put teachers in? How do we provide, get teachers to teach more students? How do we have our guidance counselors handle more students, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're doing is we're minimizing what I would argue is the most important thing we can do. And there are lots of reasons we do this, right? Because using technology and systems wants repeatable processes. It wants easy segmentation. It doesn't like the messiness of humans. It's harder to measure transformation. It's harder to measure relationship. These innovators are flipping it and saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to figure out what the most important human relationship is. And then I'm going to I'm going to automate everything else. I'm going to systemize everything else. So let me give you a really easy example, because now I'm sounding very sort of pedantic about this. 
uh, interview this woman who heads up a wonderful new uh, addiction treatment company, a startup. They have results that are two to three times better than the industry average. What they do in this case is they have flipped who manages patient care. So traditionally across the industry, the clinicians do that. They open up the file, they say, Martin is addicted to opioids. What's his history? He's been in and out of treatment over this amount of time. What have we done? Let's prescribe this, this uh, uh, medicine, uh, which will reduce his addiction. Uh, and and let's, make it, let's make sure he gets tested every three days and blah, 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 blah. And the insurance company will pay for that stuff. And what they don't like, what they don't want to do is give you unlimited counseling sessions. Well, we don't know how to measure that. Is it working? It's messy, blah, 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 right? And what this company said, they flipped it. Because what they said is, the one person who knows our patients is the person, is the counselor, the counselor who's leading the sessions. They know it. And they now quarterback the patient care. And the clinical staff, which is more expensive, and orders, right? We're in a system that will pay for services all day long. So her point would be, I can get Martin tested every other day and I will make money as a company doing that, but it's not good for Martin, it doesn't do anything. And I just had this experience at the university. So here we are, a school that prides itself on putting relationships first. And I said to our managers, 200 of them, I bet that our advisors, the people who drive this most critical human relationship are spending more than 50% of their day doing bullshit stuff that satisfies the system but actually doesn't do anything for the students. And every, every head nodded. And do you know David Graeber, Martin? David Graeber is a wonderful, and I, I love this, you'll love this combination. He's an, he was an anarchist economist, huh. which I could argue all economists are on some level, but he was an <laughs> anarchist economist who was at Yale and then later in, he was in England. He passed away, but he was kind of the intellectual godfather of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Okay. And the last job, last book he co-wrote before he died was a book called Bullshit Jobs. <laughs> and he cites the research. And what he says is that something like globally, something like 60% of people say they could stop doing their job tomorrow and no one would notice. Mm. Wouldn't, wouldn't change anything. And in the United States, it's slightly better. I want to say it's 35 or 40% of people. It's only 35. But think about that. And some goodly portion of our jobs are really about satisfying the needs of the system. So in America, if you're sitting with your doctor in that appointment and they're looking at a computer entering data, they're mostly satisfying the system and the insurance company. How long on average does an American doctor go listening to a patient? How long do they listen before they interrupt that patient? What do you think the average is? Six seconds. And if you, you read Broken Martin, so one of the stories I love best in there is the story of um, the transformation of the University of Utah healthcare system. Yes. And a guy named Lawrence Betts, who uh, was the CEO, did an amazing job. But what he, you know, when I asked him about this transformation, he took that system from being one of the poorest performing in the U.S. It's a big healthcare system. It's the biggest healthcare system in the state of Utah. He took it from being one of the poorest performing in terms of student sa patient satisfaction to literally number one in the country, the highest rated hospital system in the country. Yeah. And he did all of these things. But I said, you know, Lawrence, what was the thing that was most critical? What was like at the heart of the work? What was the principle? And he said, because Patients wanted to be seen as human beings. They just wanted their doctors to know them, mattering. 
the, the concept of mattering and the concept of being seen you I, I think you use this term and it's certainly a term that in a new book that uh, Michael Roseman and I have just published recently on the new learning economy we, we certainly use it too of of scalable personalization we're looking to build scale but we're looking to have people feel that they've been seen feel that they matter and deliver individual humane services yep. to individual very different people. And, and, and we're embracing platforms and technology more in other sectors in seeking that goal of scalable personalization. And indeed, we describe in some of the way that some of your words have just there, that a disruption and a transformation is occurring through some yep. of that. And uh, is, is that what you see going on and that will happen in higher education that are need to have people be seen and feel that they matter while we build scale for more people to be able to benefit from higher education will mean that we'll need really smart ways of using technology with people that really care about the, how the technology is deployed in build, building more scalable personalized services for learners absolutely but here's what I have to say, when people say that, what they often are describing is sort of replacing the human with technology, that somehow it does a better job of personalization. What I would say is for lots of transactions, we should deploy technology. We want to be, we want to do more. And we're pretty technology driven. But in terms of, I'm going to use, go back to the example of our academic advisors. If that's the most important um, relationship, that's where personalization happens because personalization means the system knows you, sees you in your complexity and where that's going to get manifested is in that relationship. However, we are relentless in the application of data and a very powerful CRM implementation so that as an advisor, my ability to give you that kind of care, that kind of personalization is highly enhanced. So let me give you a couple of examples to make this concrete. We are monitoring all of our students 24 seven. We do predictive analytics. We say Martin should be performing at this level based on everything we can know about him. It's mostly correlations, but they're pretty powerful and they bear out. And we're monitoring you and it's like, hmm, Martin's not doing so well in that stats course. Something's going on. I'm not gonna wait for you to put your hand up. That's a passive system. <clears throat> the system will flag me as your advisor. I'm gonna log in in the morning and at the top of my files, you're gonna see, Martin, it's going to open up a window. It's going to tell me what's going on. So I'm going to call you. Hey, Martin, it's Paul. How's it going? Great. Like, Martin, you seem to be having a little bit of a struggle in stats. What's going on? And you might say, oh, work's been hell. My kid had a cold. I fell behind. Like, I'll catch up. We're going to do the extra credit. I'm good. I'm good. Don't worry about me, Paul. I'm good. I'm like, okay, sure. Anything else you need? No, it's fine. <laughs> or I might call you up and you say, I don't know. What was I thinking? This is really hard. Works hell. Uh, I wasn't good at college when I tried it the first time. Maybe I should just bag it. And that intervention is critical to keeping you. And that's why I get to say, hey, Martin, come on. You've been killing it in your previous courses. You're going through, what can we do? Do you want some help? Let's get you some tutoring. How about if we take you down from two courses to one course for now till things get better, right? Like I can start to intervene. And sometimes it's just being heard. It's just the need to vent. How many times have we done that where it's like right through our hands up? It's like, oh, thanks. I just vented and I feel better. Like it could be anything. So 
that only happens if I'm collecting the data, if I'm deploying technology, if it's going into the CRM, that CRM is prompting you, it's making you smarter, right? It doesn't, it doesn't require me to wait till you put your hand up because I don't have any insight. No, I'm getting the insights, but that insight isn't me pouring through files. It's not me calling your faculty member, it's the deployment of technology and data. And I think we've got to think about this uh, and, and, and we're talking a lot about it around things like PLA, prior, excuse me, prior learning assessment. Can we use technology to figure out what you're good at even before you start with us? Do you have competencies for which we can give you credit? Um, we're talking about a curation engine. We're working with Google right now to create a content curation engine that would say, hey, no, we're gonna give, we're gonna serve up Martin, a very individualized learning pathway. So it's not a one size fits all, which is most of higher ed. If you and I are both mechanical engineering undergraduates at Worcester Polytech, we're gonna have largely the same experience. doesn't matter diverse backgrounds, what we're good at, what we're not good at. And that's, that's a vestige of our industrial production model. That's Taylorism, right? Um, but a personalized model, we'd be able to serve up a different learning pathway for Martin than for Paul. We both become mechanical engineers. We both have to sort of demonstrate mastery of the same competencies. But I might say, you know what? We now know enough about Martin to say, Martin, you don't need to be in a classroom to 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 show to be successful with A, B, and C. Let's just let's just test you out of that, Paul. You're not showing any background in that space. Let's get you into a learning pathway. Oh, and by the way, Paul, you seem to learn learn better in a very hands-on way. So we're going to take this part of your program and place you into an internship where we know we can address those competencies because you'll do better, right? And all of a sudden you experience your program differently than I do, even though we get to the same endpoint. That's the personalization we're trying to do. And that does depend on a lot of technology, data, insights, et cetera. Just while we're on, you, you mentioned Google there and you've mentioned a number of technologies that you at SNHU have experimented with and are piloting and are implementing to achieve these very human missions around transforming people's lives can, can you elaborate a little bit more on the likely role and place and use of technologies from ed tech and big tech providers and the partnerships with those providers of those technologies and the place that those partnerships take in your vision of the future and and what steps you and other university presidents need to be taking in this this point in time to build such yeah. relationships is that a key part of the job it is, and I think one is to ensure that universities and educators and those who really do understand what are the critical transformational relationships to improve people's lives, that that, that expertise, that those people are driving the shape of the technology rather than the inverse. So often higher education we allow technology to drive our practices and our behaviors versus the opposite. And I think that's really a critical piece. And I think the best technology companies crave that knowledge. They want to understand that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's, you know, the whole world of human-centered design, which started, if you remember, kind of as a branch of UX, like interface design, but real human-centered design goes far deeper now, is much more, as you know, uh, involved. So I think that's one piece. I think another piece is the ability to uh, not only shape the way technology is developed um, and, and, and to make sure that we're sort of protecting the most important things in the equation. I actually think there's a ethical aspects that we have to be 
much more focused on. So algorithmic bias, for example. We know we are going to be deploying more machine learning and more AI. And as you know, there's a growing body of research that talks about the kinds of biases that get reflected in the system. Um, I think there are, ethical there are ethical dimensions to the work, there are privacy dimensions to the work. We've seen the sort of concerns that have been raised around proctoring, for example, automated proctoring during the pandemic. So these are so often, I would argue, largely, if I can broadly generalize, technology is outpacing society's ability and capacity to understand all of its unintended consequences. Because I love technology and I can see the amazing good that's made possible, but I also see the amazing bad, we all do, that's also happened. So I take a look at the rise of social media and the adolescent brain and what the research tells us about it and what early exposure to it looks like. And, you know, we now live in a society with sky high levels of anxiety, depression, even before the pandemic, and where one out of every five American university students report suicide ideation. This is crisis level stuff. And I do think social media and technology have played. We live in a society where kids vie for how many likes they can get, confusing likes with relationship. They're not. They're superficial. So... I think for a lot of at least American teenagers, they have never before been more connected and never more lonely at the same time, ironically, paradoxically. So I think we as university, as universities and we as individual educators have to have a bigger voice in these questions. And I think because we generate a lot of this technology, right? Our research universities, are we, these technologies are born that we have to make sure, and I, I remember, um, God, who was, oh, it was Raphael uh, at um, president of MIT. They got a huge, massive grant for a new center for AI. And, you know, I remember saying to him, you know, Raphael, I, I hope you will be hiring as many ethicists and philosophers and child development specialists as you will technologists and engineers, because, They've got to be developed together, and we are not doing a good job on this front. Well, you, you, you talked about um, being involved in those conversations and leading that development of the technology as, as university presidents. I, I watched your interview around um, the student first book at the ASU GSV Summit earlier um, in 2022, and um, I think in that interview there, you commented on how many of our R1 and Ivy League universities, or, or maybe the, the interviewer questioned you on that, I can't remember which way around it was, but how many of our most prestigious ranking seating, seeking excellent universities and perhaps those that measure themselves by exclusion, how many of them are involved in the conversation with technology leaders and around the disruption that's taking place? And I wonder if I might use that just as a segue as we move towards the close of the sort of world that you're describing of a university that sees its students for whom its students matter to them and is relentless in the use of technology to build scale for personalized delivery. I come back to this, this question of what sort of leaders, leaving yourself and SNU, SNHU aside, what sort of leaders as presidents do those sorts of universities need? And what sort of cultures do they need to grow within their universities? I think the 
the impact of status climbing has been insidious and destructive in American higher education. So it's funny, I had a conversation with, with someone today who's an aspiring president and it's, you know, what drives you? Like for you, what would success look like? What would success look like? Imagine that you're a president and you're, you're, you're leading an institution to be named later because you're not a president yet. When you were there five years and you were successful, what would it look like? And he, he answered in ways that are perfectly acceptable in American higher education. He would say, well, I would like us you know, to be in a better financial footing. I would like us to have better students. Hold on to that phrase. Right. I would like us, you know, <laughs> I could see sort of moving through the rankings in a way that, you know, we were more short of making our class. And he had these very practical things, but they were all about, right? Um, and and I, I routinely, you know, sort of in, engage with colleagues who, you know, they want to take their athletic program from being division two to division one. Why? Well, because it, it's a signal of quality and status. Like you're a better school if you have D1 programs. And in some ways they're not wrong. Like students, prospective students, they don't, they don't know how to, they don't know how to make their decisions. So what they look for are things like, well, it's a D1 school, like it's a big school. I see their football team play on Saturday, so they must be good. You know, the reality is that most of America would never have even been thinking about the University of Alabama, except for the fact that it has a reoccurring national championship football team. It's the only reason we know the University of Alabama. I'm picking on University of Alabama only because its football coach is the most highly paid person in American higher ed, Nick Saban, who gets paid like $10 million a year. Like, where are your, where are collective priorities in this? Um, there was a sort of, you know, scathing reviews of the fact that the LSU football team has this massive state-of-the-art new training facility and locker room for its football team while there are buckets to catch the rainwater in its library. Um, are, where are our values in this? So I'm going to go back to your question. It all starts with what are your values? What are the leadership values that are needed? And I think what we need in a country for whom we see greater and greater wealth and equity, social dissolution, more and more people feeling left behind in an increasingly Darwinian society, we need people who embrace again the values of social mobility, opportunity, social justice, equity. When we start training leaders for whom, who, for, for whom those are the principal values, you start to see institutions look different. And the reality is, I suspect, that it won't be till people who have been on that journey are leading institutions that we'll see those institutions change. Um, it's, I, I, I think, you know, like I hope my six eventual successor is not another white guy of my age with gray hair like I have. I'd love it to be someone who looks more like the students we increasingly serve, a leader of color, someone who has walked that journey, who's grown up in those communities where we do our work. I think that will be when we see the values transmitted through the organization. And look, in the end, organizations come to mimic the values of their leaders. Um, I think the second thing, Marm, because we could talk a lot about this, is that when they come from those communities, there's a much higher likelihood that they will love the people they serve. Love meaning that they will be 
they'll want to be in communication and conversation in relationship with those people that they will seek to understand because they have been there themselves an understanding of what's needed for them to be successful that they'll be willing because budgets in the end always reflect values they'll be willing to spend on the things those students need as opposed to the things that uh, garner attention and better rankings um, the ranking systems have been so destructive for for the things that I care about. Um, I think they will. I think what we need are leaders that are uh, curious, because we live in a world that has going through so much change so quickly that anyone who believes they know right now is suspect to me. Mm -hmm. um, right, and we work with the we've worked a lot with the Institute for the Future out of Palo Alto, and they've done a wonderful sort of saying that in a VUCA world, do you know that acronym? It's, Come popular comes out of the military volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous yep. right yep. describes our world in a VUCA world um, you need to be clear about your end goals your values and your mission but you should never be too certain about how you'll get there because certainty is a kind of rigidity and rigidity breaks fast so so higher education is ironically for what it is incredibly hierarchical, rigid, and certain. We're an expert culture where status accrues to the smartest person in a room. Anybody who's sat in a faculty meeting will tell you that a lot of it is spent with individuals trying to show you they're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> uh, but it means a culture in which it's very hard to say, I don't know, yeah. or I need help. And I do think that we will see some of the most successful institutions be those that have leaders that look like the students that we need to serve, who have walked that journey, who love those students, whose values transmit through the institution, um, and who are curious learners in a world that's starting to look very, very different. The number one thing I look for in hiring senior leaders now is, is curiosity. And I've had two interviews with people for very senior positions, and in both, in both cases, I had to say to them afterwards, like, this isn't a good fit. Of course, I want to know why. And I said, because in the two-hour conversation, you asked almost no questions. Yeah. And I've been too much like that at times as a leader. I think I've had to change my leadership practices in these last few years. I've had to learn to be more curious and a little bit less certain. Because you get to a certain age and you can start to get a little bit like, oh, I've seen this before. I've run this thing's this thing's come around the track before. And there's some truth to that. Like if you lead long enough, I'm 65. I've seen a fair bit of things come around the track again, but they're not coming back around the track in the way they used to. They look different. The world is different. Our students are different. Our employees are different. And it's quite exciting. Kind of, it, we, A lot of us feel like things have, we've been thrown off kilter, but I also sort of see a lot of good coming out of what's happening right now. And we're too much in the middle of it to really know what it is, to really know in the end, right? Um, so it's going to be, we'll, we'll have decades of dissertations written on these years. Well, decades of dissertations and a fantastic conversation today that um, I've very much enjoyed. But I'm going to ask you a question in closing that um, that I think I that I think I can imagine the answer to. In in leading the largest university in the U.S. to to help transform the lives of more than 180,000 people at a time, about whom you and your colleagues think they can go to college someday. Does all of this matter to you, Paul? In some ways, it's really the only thing that matters. None of us will be very much remembered for our bank accounts, 
our books will, you know, the kind of books that I write will fall out of date and others will, you know. Um, but what one hopes is that generationally, 100, 150 years, 200 years from now, there'll be children walking the earth better because of the experience at SNHU and they won't know me and they won't know SNHU. And I think about my parents um, who, as I said, worked in a factory, cleaned houses. My dad was a day laborer. My two daughters who have enjoyed privilege because of my success, the thing that connects the dots for them the thing that has given them a life that is almost unimaginable to my parents if they were still with us was my ability to have loving, affordable, high-quality higher education. So I have an unapologetic embrace of this maybe schmaltzy notion, there's that word again, <laughs> that education is still the most powerful engine of social change and opportunity in our society. So our North Star goal, if you ask anyone who works at SNHU, what they'll tell you is we transform lives at scale. That's our North Star goal. We write it everywhere. Um, and the question we have posted in every single conference room in our place is, are the decisions we made here today good for our students? And, and that's what fuels me. So does it matter? Yeah, I mean, outside of the love of my family, my kids, it's the thing that matters most. Well, that, that's been abundantly clear in the conversation that we've had, Paul. And I, on behalf of all the listeners and the people that you're inspiring, the, the people whose lives you're changing as students, the people whose days you're giving joy to as your, as your fellow staff members, and for making an incredible contribution to things that really matter to so many people in the world, thank you so much for being our guest on HeadX. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, Martin, shoot. What's your thoughts? Yeah, well, look, there's some really, real, really pointed messages there about the importance of what we focus on, Carl, and what we spend our time on. And those ideas that he um, brings up in that second half of the interview about this concept of mattering, it, you make a difference to people if you leave them feeling that they matter to you. And how many students generally in universities are left with the thoughts and staff for that matter, that um, the extent to which they matter to their institution is limited. And to what extent was that impacted by changes of working and practice and attendance and delivery over the last two or three years? These these are huge issues. And, and the second thing that's important for me in what Paul's message was there to start with is this concept of being seen. You feel important, you feel enthused, you feel on board and engaged. If you have a sense that people are seeing you. And in contrast, if you don't feel that you're being seen, um, it leads to cultural responses that can be extremely unhelpful for organizations. But look, that that's me taking some views in a in a self self-reflective way from my experience of universities. You live this sort of thing day in, day out, Carl. I'm sure there were there was lots in that, that that interview with Paul that would have resonated with you. Certainly culturally, I found it really interesting and for many reasons, in two in particular. One is the concept of psychological safety, people being recognized, being seen, uh, getting a feeling that they have a future there and that they are valued is it's it's really at a very a very low point and has been for many years. We saw the end of 2019 being a critical burnout period for a lot of organizations and a lot of executives. And the pandemic, whilst it was devastating, actually came at a good time to be a circuit breaker for the way that we'd been operating and working. 
for many, many years, decades, in fact. So for organizations, it's a very clear message, and that can be universities or, or beyond that, that this concept of instilling a sense of recognition, um, psychological safety, so people feel like they can be themselves, they can be heard, they can ask for help. And moving from autocratic leadership to authentic leadership is the really big theme at the moment. So we're humans go to patterns and habits because we conserve energy in doing so. That we don't need to go and explore and be curious, to your point. Some of the habits and patterns over the last several decades have been about hierarchical leadership. And we, we've talked about it as sort of motherhood statements, but actually transformational change towards authentic, more flatline leadership is very, very rare. So that's the first thing. Organizations really are going to do better if they can move towards more authentic, open communication and greater levels of psychological safety. The second part that I found fascinating from Paul, when he talked about David Graeber, um, yeah, the professor from the London School of Economics who had that book uh, and concept really about bullshit jobs. Now, this is an individual impetus, which means when we work uh, or look inside an organization, you will get an idea of uh, principles and policies and practices. But in terms of individual mot motivation, David Graeber's principle that there are a host of bullshit jobs that just don't matter if you didn't do them wouldn't matter. And you know that. And in fact, lawyers saying, um, the majority of lawyers saying there were less lives in the world, the world would be a better place. The what we've seen is that this is a real this is a real push. There's for many years there's been an assumption from individuals that you will get a job and you'll be successful just because. You haven't had to prove that. Now with the threat of technology, AI moving in very heavily, and that will only that will only accelerate, individuals are going to need to really perform. So this idea of getting participation awards in the workplace, oh, I participated, therefore I'm successful, that's not going to cut it. You're going to have to actually perform and prove that you, you deliver value, provide value to customers, shareholders, whatever it might be, hopefully much broader to that in terms of society and the world, to be successful. And so there's a new bar. The bar has been raised here and it's not an assumption or you can't just expect that you'll show up, put the tie on. Goodness me, no one wears a tie anymore, thank God. But you won't put on the corporate uniform, wander and have the conversation and then progress up the ladder. That's not going to happen. You're going to need to justify your position against not only one another, but technology moving forward. Yeah, that that combination of how people respond and behave and how they have evolved in their, how we have evolved in our understanding of them in organizations and the application of technology. For me, that was a really big message from that second half of our interview with Paul in and that um, the concepts of scalable personalization there and the importance of technology and the importance of partnership, I pushed him on that and, and challenged him to comment on how important that was. And, and while he quite rightly identified how important to Southern New Hampshire University the deployment of technology was, he very much saw it as... A, a, a means to an end and rather than an end in itself. It was it was the fact that the organization and its leadership had purpose and the people in the organization were serving that purpose supported by technology rather than any of that being the other way around. Mm. And I think there's some crucial messages there for our work in HEDEX with our members and with our partners in the sector in Australia and globally coming up and, and, and being a point of focus in the weeks and months ahead, starting with the um, with the UA conference and the launch of our book next week and the, the live event in Melbourne in March. It's this this first set of interviews with Paul LeBlanc's given us a fantastic foundation and a springboard for the rest of the year. 
Absolutely. And we'd love people to come and connect with us at the UA conference. The book launch itself is on Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. We'll also have a HeadX stand where we'll be doing interviews with people from the sector. If you're interested in sharing your opinion, we are all ears and, and all, all microphone. And of course, the HeadX live event is on March 15. You can head to the HeadX website for more information on that. 